All right, so my sister's baby daddy uh, bought a car, and uh, it was a Nissan uh, Altima, and um, it was really nice, and for, um, you know, the first, like, week he bought it, he had to go on a trip, and so he left it at my, uh, at my house. Uh, I lived with my parents at the time, and, uh, and so he left it there, and he was like, yeah, if you want to drive it, you could drive it. I'm like, oh, yeah. So it was, it was a, I mean, brand new. It was like a week old, right? It was standard, which was really fun. And um, it had like six gears. It, was go, it would go super fast, and I loved it, right? It was really, so I'm, I'm driving down the highway one, one afternoon uh, in that few days that he led it to me. And I'm like, yeah, too fast, yeah, too furious, yeah. And I'm like swooping around cars. I'm like, wow, this is like awesome. Like, cause I had like a 1989, like Daihatsu charade, which like barely got to like 45 miles an hour. Like, so I'm like going down the highway, right? And then all of a sudden, like I'm driving and then, guess what happened? I perfectly parallel parked it because I'm a really good driver, right? <laughs> but um, later on, uh, a few weeks later, my uh, sister's baby daddy was driving this car and he was going up to the mountains of Puerto Rico, uh, so a place called Calle. And you have to go up these like really steep hills uh, on the highway. And as he's going up, all of a sudden smoke starts to billow out of, uh, out of the hood. And this is, something's going on. This isn't right. Something's not right here. So he pulls the car over, and the engine is just like, like smoke is coming out of everywhere. We find out later what happens. Someone hadn't put enough oil in the engine. Mike's like, I knew it. I knew it. Though I don't know, I don't know a lot about cars, but I know there's like moving things that like the explosions, and they move, and they create like, like energy and that stuff, right? And... Um, those things are called pistons. I didn't know that. But engines are incredibly complicated, and they're all these moving pieces that move in an incredibly accelerated speed, right? And in order for them to work properly, there's, there needs to be oil inside the engine, which lubricates everything and keeps everything functioning the way it's supposed to be. But someone, whether on purpose or by accident, had not followed the design of the car. And oil that was supposed to be flowing in this engine, lubricating and keeping it alive, wasn't there. And walking away from design led to dysfunction. And that dysfunction created damage. They had to replace the entire engine. The car never worked the same after that. Well, you and I were also designed in a certain way. We were designed to function in a very particular way. God created us and designed us to live in relationship with him. First, uh, not first, uh, Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created by him and for him. Speaking of Jesus Christ. We were created to be to, to, for him, for relationship with him. But what happened is... We've walked away from the design. The Bible would say that we have all uh, turned, like sheep, we've all turned away. And we've walked away from that. And so what happens is, is there's a, a flaw in the, in the dysfunction because we've walked away from the design of how we were supposed to be. And I think in our, in, in our culture and in our time, right, we have this... Um, we have this 
kind of this energy or this push or this drive to be a good person, right? I have to just be a, a, a good person. As long as I'm a good person, there's this pressure of like, well, I'm a good person, right? You know, you know it's, 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 well, how good do you have to be to be a good person? And how bad can you get away with, how much bad can you get away with before you're no longer a good person? What are the standards? I saw this movie one time, and it, it, these teenagers, they got, like, superpowers, right? And, uh, of course, all teenagers with superpowers, they're going to do the right thing, right? But one of them, like, goes kind of crazy and ends up, like, just going on a, like, murderous, like, escapades, right? He's just, like, goes around, like, just murdering people. And at the end of the show, like, the rest of the teenagers have to, like, fight against him, and he was, like, their best friend. And the last scene, they, like, bury him in this, like, holy place on the Himalayan mountains. And their friends are like, he was a good person, no, he wasn't. He murdered, like, a ton of people. Like, so at what point? Like, what is the standard, right, of, uh, of, um, of being a good person? Where does, that, where does that fall? You know, if we look at society, if we look at a, a, around our world, right, everywhere, every country, every person, I think, has some kind of degree of what they believe is right and wrong. Right? Now, I'm not saying that's all the same, right? Some people, right and wrong, are very different from other people, right? And other cultures, you know, would say one thing is moral and one thing is not. Uh, but I would say, I would venture to say that almost every country, almost every human being has some degree of what is right and wrong, right? And here's my question to us, is if we know what's right, why don't we always just do that? Why don't we always just do what we know is right? Or on the other side of that, why do we do the things that we know are wrong? Now let's be honest with ourselves, right? Who here has done something? You knew you weren't supposed to do it. You knew like the consequences of what would happen if you did it, and you did it anyways, right? Yeah? Those of you who didn't have your hands up, you're like, like mm, I don't know. <laughs> I think we've all done that, right? Right, because the pressure of having to do everything perfectly is just overwhelming. The question then is, how much bad can God allow in heaven? If God is perfect and heaven is a perfect space, how much then evil or wrong can God allow in that space before it then is ruined? I would suggest to you this, the problem is much deeper than just skin deep. Because each of us are... Uh, we all have the capacity for good. We all have the capacity for evil, right? We all have the capacity to be kind, to be generous, to be uh, compassionate, to be loving, to be patient. And likewise, we all have the capacity to be impatient and selfish and rude and cruel and self-centered, right? We have the capacity for good and evil. And so uh, at what point is there something broken on a deeper level in humanity. And I would suggest to us that uh, it's not just about behavior. That there's something deeper in the mix. There's a deeper dysfunction. There's a deeper uh, problem that we've walked away with that has created a deep dysfunction in our personal lives and in our society. And I want to explore that a little bit. But first, I want to jump into one of uh, uh, the stories. We've been following along with Jesus. We've been looking at the stories of Jesus and what has Jesus done and how he lived his life and how that models for us uh, God and how that can transform us in our behavior and how we live our lives and relate to one another, right? 
And so, uh, looking at John chapter 8, this is one of my, uh, this is is such a beautiful um, passage, right? Join me as I read this. Listen, Listen to what happens. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people had gathered around him. Oh, this is Jesus. Let's, let's hear what he has to say. Right? They gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, look at this. They brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So Jesus is standing there. He's teaching. And then all of a sudden you you can hear the commotion. You can hear the screaming. You can hear people pushing and shoving. right? And And this group of people invade this space where Jesus had been sharing. And they're dragging this woman in and they throw her in before Jesus. She had been caught in the midst of committing adultery. So think about kind of where, what she was, she, talk about being exposed, talk about being vulnerable, talk about being um, shamed. Imagine the worst moment of her life, right? This moment she's being dragged before all these people. And so we have several players, right? We have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right, who are supposed to be, these are the experts of the law. These are the ones who are supposed to help us understand and follow the law and draw us closer to God, what, how to live in relationship with God and with each other in society. We have the people who are there, who are listening to Jesus, wanting to draw closer to Jesus. We have this woman caught in adultery, exposed. And then we have Jesus standing there in front of this woman, And they made her stand there in front of the group, right? And here's the trap they set up for Jesus. They say then, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Hear the contempt in their voice, in their language. What do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, here's the trap, right? If Jesus says to this woman, yes, she is sinful, yes, she is uh, to be condemned, stone her. On the one hand, then, uh, they have basis to accuse him because only the Romans were allowed to execute and, uh, and so Jesus would have broken the Roman law and, would have a reason, and then the Romans would have had a reason to accuse him and arrest him. But not only that, but as Jesus is teaching about God's love and, and, uh, and about the kingdom of God, to then stand and, and, and say that this woman stone her. Where's the love of God in that? But on the other hand, if Jesus says, no, let her go, she's innocent. Well, she's actually guilty. She was caught in the act. And so for Jesus to say, let her go, he would be violating the law of Moses. He would have broken the law, and the, and they would, the Pharisees would have reason to then accuse Jesus of breaking the moral law of God. This is a law that was given by God. And so there is the trap. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? And uh, 
we know that the Pharisees are cheating here in a, se- in a little bit because the law, that actual chapter, that actual verse, that law, specifically, uh, we, we, we have to notice there seems to be something missing from uh, the equation of the woman committing adultery, right? It has to be said. Because the law itself, right, this is from Leviticus 10, 20, it says that if a man commits adultery, and I'll, let me read it to you, says this, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. And so we seem to notice that there is a, a, a significant, uh, uh, we're missing half of the equation, right, in this, in this um, dysfunction, in this uh, problem, right? Uh, and they were definitely twisting the law to serve themselves, and they definitely were hiding the other the high, half of this scandal. But on the other hand, we have to also admit the woman was guilty. And she stands before Jesus, and she was caught red-handed. She had broken the law. Well, how did she get into this mess? How does one get into these situations? Isaiah 53 verse 6 says this, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. So God has created us to live in relationship with him, to walk in relationship with him. And what we have essentially done is we've turned from God and said, oh, I want to live my own way, begun by Adam and Eve, and then passed down generation to generation to generation. It is not only our behavior, but it is also something deeper uh, that we like sheep, right? And, and, and part of the thing here with, uh, with sheep, anybody here ever wrangled sheep? Anybody here ever spent time with sheep? Really, Annie? Yeah. All right. Come on. Look at that. Oh, man. All right. Well, here's my sheep spiel. And, and Annie, afterwards, you can tell me if I'm off base or if I'm okay with some of this stuff. Just don't do it in front of everybody. <laughs> But what I've read and what I've learned about sheep, because I, I don't have a lot of experience with sheep, is that sheep uh, need to have an external person or thing keeping them together. Because what sheep will do is they will start eating and they will just kind of lose their place and be distracted in their eating and they'll just kind of, and they'll wander off and they'll wander away. And so they need to be corralled. They need to be, uh, and so what the Bible is saying is comparing us is like sheep, we have turned and we have gone our own way. Instead of moving in the direction that we are supposed to, we have decided to go our own way. And sometimes that looks like a, a willful desire, like I'm going to do this my way and I don't care what you say. And sometimes we're just trying to find ourselves. We're just trying to live. We're just trying to survive. We're just trying to cope. And we find ourselves like a sheep just wandering off and then finding ourselves lost and in danger and distant. Well, the Bible would call this independence from God, this turning from God's way, would call it sin. This is the, the, the word that it would use to define that. We have all turned away from that. And here's the problem, right? Is that sin we often think of as just the behavioral things, just the way that I act, the way that I speak, the way. But the problem is that sin is way worse than that. The Bible would teach us that sin is a condition that we have. And it's interesting because you can see this in people. If you, if you, for those of you who have children, I wonder how you've been able to see some of this kind of starting to 
uh, this nature exposed in your, even in your child, right? I have a, a 15, he'll be 16-month-old ba- uh, baby, uh, and his first way of interacting with other children is just to bite them, like, right? Or smack them. He's like, hi, friend, whack, right? But not only that, there'll be times when he's doing something that he knows he's not supposed to do, and we'll be like, Sebastián, and he'll look at us, and Marga will be like, Sebastián, no hagas eso, don't do that. And he'll go, and he'll willfully do it, right? Because there's something inside of us. But here's the problem. And that's kind of funny, and it's funny to think about, right? But sin is a condition that we have that is incurable. The Bible would say that it's not just the outside things that we do. Those are just the symptoms the example that I uh, typically use is uh, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, um, is HIV positive. And, uh, and there's no cure for that. And uh, they're working on it. And uh, what can happen, what doctors can do is they can help keep his symptoms. They can help protect him from uh, diseases. But his body has a deficiency, has this disease that creates, that, that means that he is unable to fight against infections and other outside diseases. And so they can, when, if uh, he gets sick, they can, they can uh, help that symptom, but they can't cure the problem. The problem is deeper inside. And sin, just like that, we often will say, well, it's just the actions that we do, or if I just behave in a certain way, then maybe I can steer away from that. But that's just the symptoms of the deeper problem that is inside of us. And that deeper problem is a condition that we have. Well, who has this condition, right? Psalm 53 Two and three would say this. God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23 would say this. It makes no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a condition that we all have, right? But just like the, uh, the walking away from design led to dysfunction in my sister's baby daddy's car, that dysfunction led to damage. And that damage leads to death. And ultimately, the, the, the burden of sin is that it will kill you. God's push for us to turn from sin is not because he, he doesn't want us to engage in fun things because lots of sin is lots of fun, right? It's not about just God wanting to be the, a, a colossal universal party pooper. It's that sin is going to kill us. Independence from God is going to kill us. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6 23. That dysfunction creates damage and it leads to death. Relational death as we hurt each other, our neighbors, our families, our friends. It leads to emotional death as we slowly close ourselves off. It leads to physical death. The sicknesses that we face, the brokenness of our world, our physical death, and eventually it leads to eternal 
death. In mathematics, if you have two parallel lines and you just draw a little bit, they will continue on for eternity, right? Even though you only see a certain part of it. And if those lines are off, even by the smallest degree, if you think about them continuing for eternity, how far, how distant will they go? In aviation, they have this, this rule of thumb, which is the one in 60 rule, is that if, um, if you're off even one degree from your destination, if you're off by one degree every 60 miles, that means you will be one mile off course from where you want to be. Right? But, so, so think about it, right? If I'm flying from here to 60 miles away and I'm off by one degree, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land my plane a mile away from where, I'm, where I wanted to be. Now imagine if my flight is 100 miles, 300 miles, 1,000 miles around the world. Right? And how that continues to pull us away from God. Let me illustrate this for us. And the recording might suffer a little bit online, so... I apologize for you, those of you who are listening online. I'm going to step away from the mic because it's just easier. How much sin can God allow into heaven? <laughs> just going to put this on so I don't get away. If we're saying a little bit of sin, how much sin can God allow? How much is too much before I'm no longer a good person? How much is it okay for me? Think about sin as this paint. The problem with us is we've seen the effects of how sin has changed our world. We've seen how much sin affects the world around us in wars, in famine, in destruction. We've seen how our lifestyle has created a, a global climate issue that not only affects us, but affects all other countries. Did you guys know that every day, thousands of children die because of hunger-related disease? Every 10 seconds, a child will die in the world because of hunger-related diseases, starvation, malnutrition. seated in our country, right? The man who wrote that, uh, the Declaration of Independence, that with his right hand, he, he says that all men are created equal. Well, with his left hand, he believed it was right and okay to own another human being. We've seen how sin affects everything we touch. But not only that, not only on the larger scale, but we've seen it on the smaller scale of how sin affects our families. Because it's in you, and it's in me, and it's in everything we do. 
And so the brokenness that I feel and how that affects those I love and how that affects those who love me and how they treat me. Because every part of us is tainted by this. And so everything that I touch, everything that you touch is going to be tainted by this. And so the people that are supposed to love us the most, the people that are supposed to protect us the most, the people that are supposed to be the safest sometimes can be the ones who break us the most and hurt us the most. And then out of that brokenness that I have experienced, I break others. Because broken people break people. And hurting people hurt other people. We've experienced how sin nothing safe. There's nothing safe from this. Because it's every part of me. It's in every part of you. It's in every part of Santa Clara. Innocence is lost because of the brokenness of our condition. Well, can't I just be a good person, and what if I just try really, really hard, and what if I clean myself off, and what if I, what if I just, what if I just try really hard to be a good person and to love others, and what if I just never tell a lie, what if I always tell the truth, and what if I, what if I just try? The reality of sin, of what Jesus, what the Word is telling us is this, is that all have sinned. It makes no difference that the wages of sin is Here's the worst part of it all. It's, it's not what's on my hands. It's not just what I do. It is not just the lifestyle that I live. The problem with sin is it's inside of me. It's inside my heart. And now it's on the floor. <laughs> it's inside of me. It comes from within and forth problem with sin is a condition. And I can't clean that up. I can't clean that. And you can't clean that. And this is how we find the woman. Standing before Jesus. Guilty caught, red-handed, covered in her sin. And this is how God has found me, caught, guilty, and covered in my sin, and deserving everything that I should get. They caught her in adultery and they made her stand before this group. And they said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And there we stand before Jesus. 
What will Jesus do? What will Jesus say? We deserve death. We deserve the condemnation for the sin of our lives. And look what Jesus does. Jesus bent down and he started to write on the floor with his finger. And they kept questioning him. Answer us, Jesus. What do you say? What do we do with her? Do we stone her? What do you say? Jesus, speak. What do you say? And he straightened up. And he looked at them and said, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. And again, he stooped down and began to write on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the women still standing there. All these men who accused her dropped their stones and walked away. And Jesus standing before her for the first time, he addresses her. In this whole situation, for the first time, someone addresses her, someone asks her, someone gives her voice, someone says, it's your turn to speak. And Jesus asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. He said, she said, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus was the only one who could, only one who had the right, the only one who could condemn. And Jesus looks at her in the worst moment of her life, in the darkest place that she found herself, in the deepest despair, in the place where she deserves death, where she had earned death, where the wages of what she had earned was death. Jesus looks at her and doesn't condemn her. And Jesus looks at us in the worst of who we are, in the worst moments of our lives, in the condition that we have, in the sinfulness of our lives, in the brokenness of what we've done and of who we are. And he says, I love you. I choose you. And the only reason and the only way that Jesus could do this is because Jesus knew that farther down the road... He was going to take her sin upon himself. And he was going to take my sin upon himself. Because that is what Jesus does. He takes this sin that we have. That we are guilty of it. And he took that sin and he laid it upon himself on the cross so that we could have life in him. Jesus shared a moment a few chapters before this 
this man, this teacher of the law, comes to find Jesus and, and asks Jesus questions. And Jesus says this, and maybe you've heard this verse before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And the verse right after it says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus knew what it would take, that someone had to pay for sin. Someone has to pay for this. And Jesus is picking up the tab for you, for me, for this woman, for all of us. Does no one condemn you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. So how do we respond then? Where does our takeaway? What do I do in response to this? For some of us, we find ourselves as the woman, exposed, guilty, broken, standing before our Savior. And Jesus wants to extend to you forgiveness and grace and love and acceptance. 1 John 1, 8 says, if anyone has sinned, confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is nothing that we can lay before Jesus that is too great. There is no sin, no brokenness, no harm too great that we can't lay it before Jesus. And that's good news. Some of us maybe are like the men with the stone. We are eager to throw stones at others, hoping that that will somehow mask my own sin and my own wrongdoing. And if I could just, like frogs in a jar, trying to step on top of each other, trying to get to the top of the jar to get out. If I could just step on someone else, then I'm not as bad as them. I can, I can show righteousness. I'm a good person. I can prove it I'm a good person. It's time to let our stones down. Because here's the reality, right? If the goal is, this is a metaphor, if the goal is to be on the moon and to touch the moon, it doesn't matter whether you're standing on sea level or the highest mountain in the Himalayas. You're not there and it's impossible for you to get there. And so our judging others who are below us, this, we have to break from that because the reality is I am just as sinful and need just as much grace from God. And so my response to someone else can't be this don't touch me because you're going to make me dirty again. But I'm already dirty. Let me embrace you. Let me extend forgiveness to you. Let me extend the grace that was extended to me, to you. First Peter 4 verse 8 says this, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sin. And love has to be sincere. It has to be measured in action. It can't be merely an internal ideological state of being like that. I just, I just love, right? I feel this love and that's okay, but you stay over there and don't touch me because I don't want to get dirty. It has to move us to action. 
to embrace those who are just as dirty as us, to love with our hands, with our wallets, with our voice, with our resources, those who are just as broken as us, so that they can receive. Earlier in the story in Matthew 9, Jesus was talking to possibly the same teachers of the law of Pharisees, and he tells them this. Matthew 9, verse 13, he says this, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call righteous, but sinners. What God asks from us is not mere religious symbolism and running through the motion. What God asks from us is mercy. Sin is way worse than we thought. And we've made an absolute mess of all of this. But the beauty of Christ is that just as he didn't condemn this woman, he doesn't condemn us, but extends to you and to me grace, forgiveness, wholeness, health, and connection again with God. And what he asks of us is to give then away what we have received, that same love and grace and favor and help to those around us. I want to pray, and then we're going to go to a, a time of communion. And as you approach the table of the Lord, remember that what we are celebrating, that what we are, uh, sim what is being symbolized here, what we are doing is going to the table where the body and the blood of Christ was broken and shed to pay the cost of my sin and yours so that we could have right relationship with God and bring shalom to our neighbors to our friends, to our family, to those around us, to those who have hurt us. And so my encouragement to you is come to the table, come messy, come broken, come as you are, and let Jesus bring healing, fix you, make you whole again. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you saw us in the worst of our lives, in the brokenness of our place, like this woman standing before you, naked, ashamed, guilty, and you extend love and grace and forgiveness because you loved us so much. You took the cross I pray, God, that we could understand that and we could walk in that and we could receive today again as we receive communion, that we could receive again, impart unto us that grace, that forgiveness, that love, so we can extend it to those around us. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for that love that you showed us. In Jesus' name. Amen.